Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, my name's Stuart Miles and welcome to the Pocket Podcast. Qualcomm's got a new Snapdragon processor and with it comes the confirmation that it's going to be powering a bevy of new phones and devices over the coming months from the likes of Motorola, Oppo, Realme, Xiaomi and others. Now the good news is that Pocalint's Mike Lowe joins me live from the event in Hawaii to talk us through all the big announcements. Meanwhile, I recently caught up with Gary Shapiro, the President and CEO of the Consumer Technology Association, to talk about what we can expect from the organization's annual Las Vegas tech show, CES, this year, and how the technology industry is learning to adapt to the current climate. And to finish it all off, Pocket Max Freeman Mills has been playing the multiplayer shooter Battlefield 2042. He joins me to give his his verdict on the new game. Is it victory for gamers? Well, keep listening to find out. But first, back to you, Mike. What's been happening in Hawaii, and how's it going to affect us all in the coming months? So, yeah, as as I literally have started this conversation, I'm being surrounded by strange little birds with red heads. So uh, <laughs> it, it's nice to be in a different location sometimes. Um Anyway, the big news, obviously, is all Qualcomm. Um, it has announced the Snapdragon 8 Gen 1, which if you've been following them uh, over the years, when they've been in various devices that you've had, um, you'll notice it's a, it's a name change. Um, so it's a very big kind of step change in, in how that's being approached. Um, gone are the bigger numbers. There's no, there's no 898. That doesn't exist. There's no 895. There's none of that. It's literally Snapdragon 8 is flagship. This is Generation 1. And presumably, year on year, you'll, you'll get future generations like Gen 2, Gen 3, and so on. So it's a, a whole new way of kind of conveying that this is their, their flagship platform without overcomplicating the numbers. Um, and as you said in intro, it's um, not known exactly where this is going to kind of land, but we'll see it in various flagship devices. Um, the very first one to confirm promptly after the uh, press conference was Xiaomi with the, uh, the Xiaomi 12, which okay. we believe will probably be announced... In the coming weeks, I would suspect, typically speaking, their, their flagships are announced kind of mid to end of December, um, and that, I would imagine, will be initially China only, um, but, you know, come January, I wouldn't be surprised if that's the very first phone into the market. Um, as for the actual platform itself, um, obviously, it's kind of an incremental change over the, the predecessor, um, which at the top end was the 888, um, and... There's a few kind of interesting things it, it does. Um, the, the biggest of all, really, and it's, it's a bit geeky, but <laughs> it's kind of the best in class in terms of delivering uh, the fastest possible 5G if right. you're in a part of the world where that kind of stuff is supported. So this platform in particular, it runs both millimeter wave and sub-6G, um, and it can actually aggregate two of those, um, which will give you the potential to have 10 gigabit download speeds, which is kind of ridiculous. Um, it's kind of a future-proofing thing because in the UK, you're not going to get that yet because we don't really run anything with millimeter wave. Um, but say you're Japanese, for example, you've probably got a much better network to support that. So you might have optimum speeds um, in those parts of the world. 
And does that seem to be the big focus this year is just continuing to boost that connectivity where previous generations of, of the Snapdragon processor, we've seen a focus on cameras or we've focused on, on gaming or a focus on sort of AR or VR or, or things like that? Um, it's it's everything. So, you know, if we were to break it down, the, the, the cameras actually see quite a big leap. They've got their, their first ever 18-bit um, image signal processor. So it can do an awful lot more in terms of the amount of data that's been captured. Um, which means, and this was kind of their big headline announcement, it's the first platform uh, mobile chip that can support 8K HDR video. Um, so, you know, things are accelerating really quickly. Um, elsewhere, you know, the display will be kind of supported up to 140 hertz, so you get the super fast refresh rate um, at Quad HD resolution. Um, and yeah, kind of incrementally everywhere, it's kind of improvements across the board. Um, and I think kind of most, most specifically, perhaps, is kind of, there's a lot more talk about artificial intelligence uh, and um you know it's been kind of talked to death really hasn't it over over the years mm. but here they're they're kind of really pushing um actual demonstrations that kind of show you this is what we can do with this stuff um and, and the interesting part here is it's because this is a platform it's not just a, a processor you know there's a cpu there's a gpu yeah. there's all these other components there's like a little section of ai that's always running so you can do all these kind of not particularly heavyweight things, but things that will take the strain off the actual processor to allow that to do what it needs to do. Um, and there's just lots of little examples like um, kind of background blur um, in video that's now super fast. There's kind of the more advanced facial recognition, so it can track faces with like 300 different points. Um, and kind of just various automated things that hopefully in the future developers can kind of grab a hold of and go ah it can do this kind of always listening thing so let's let's make that kind of sync with your smart home or something when when your ring doorbell goes maybe your headphone volume automatically turns down when you're synced through your phone and just little details like that so it's kind of um kind of making making your everyday life just that bit easier kind of thing i think that's what they're trying to push forward on now, I know at these events, always the focus is, you know, who's coming out with the next new mobile phone with this flagship chip and, and, and approach. Are we seeing any other devices beyond what we'd expect just, you know, a, a device to make phone calls in that sense? Uh, yeah, so it's been a really busy event. Um, first day was focused on on this new platform for mobile, but uh, there's more. There's, there's plenty more. So, um, you know, Qualcomm's really trying to push its kind of various core areas and mobile is one, but... Um, Automotive is another big one. Um, there's a whole new compute platform as well. They're up to Gen 3 on HCX, which will be um, in some future laptops from kind of the beginning of 2022. Um, also a, a new kind of gaming platform as well, um, which have kind of been prototyped in a, a Razer device, like a handheld kind of console um, that can run Xbox Game Pass, it can, it can run Steam, it can run Android games. Um, so it's kind of this whole full kind of circle of, of approach on, on various different areas of interest um so it's been a really busy busy event and and did you say we'll start to see devices in the coming weeks i think so yeah um maybe not with hands-on quite quite yet but i'd imagine kind of from cs time mobile World congress next year kind of january um yeah things will be rolling out this is ultimately their 2022 flagship and uh you know, the flagship devices out there are going to be running it ultimately. So we'll, I think we'll see plenty of uh, plenty of handsets come to market pretty soon. Still to come, Max gives us his verdict on Battlefield 2042. All-out warfare 
is the kind of core mode where you're battling on huge maps. But they've also added something called Hazard Zone, which is a much smaller and tenser affair that, if I'm honest, is struggling for players at the moment, but does have an interesting core where you have to infiltrate an area as a squad, pick up objectives and then leave. And it's kind of a lot more high stakes. And if you die, that's it. Gary Shapiro is the president and CEO of the Consumer Technology Association. His job, besides helping his organization represent the thousands of tech company members across the USA, is to put on the biggest tech conference in the world, CES. The annual show that in previous years has seen over 100,000 people attend in one go is back in both a physical and virtual format for 2022. But how have things changed? What's in store? And just how is the industry coping with everything from supply chain issues to the rise of AI? I put all those questions and a few others to the big boss and started by asking what we can expect from CES 2022. I expect it to be a wonderful and joyful event as we return to Las Vegas uh, January 5th through 8th and get everyone together who has not gotten together in the last two years with uh, such an exciting lineup of exhibitors and speakers. We have uh, groups from all over the world. We have major brands. We have new categories, including food tech and space tech and NFTs. Uh, we have new companies like Sierra Space featured in our featuring its space plane. Uh, Netgear's mural will showcase its digital canvas for NFT art. And Beyond Honeycomb will, will show an AI-enabled robot that recreates your favorite restaurant meal. So there's new things, which we always get from CES. There's people, which is so important, that face-to-face experience of people getting together, the serendipity and the absolutely pure joy of people getting together again. uh, I was in Europe a few weeks ago for various CES unveiled events, and joy was the operative word. It's excitement, it's pleasure, it's people seeing each other face-to-face, it's relationships, it's the joy of discovery, and the joy of an industry which is solving some of the biggest problems in the world and providing solutions for making the world greener, uh, getting people uh, to have uh, better education, transportation, communication. And it's all those things that we're doing as an industry combined with the people that make CES such a special and important event. Now, I've been attending the show for almost 20 years now. Uh, I've kind of lost count of how many times I've been. Um, In that time, the the industry has changed dramatically and the show has changed dramatically. What do you think the sort of the rising sectors are that sort of taking over and and kind of, you know, really showcasing and using the show to showcase their new wares? Well, the show is uh, we try to make it so it could not only showcase the emerging technology, but also see the future technology as well. So we've been talking about 5G and artificial intelligence and robotics for years, and companies have been showing products. And now as this becomes a reality in the marketplace, we're seeing it. But some things you, you might not have focused on, um, for example, the automotive category. There's one that's it's our largest automotive category ever at CES. And what are we seeing there? We're seeing self-driving vehicles. We're seeing the rapid shift to electric. We're seeing uh, first-time car manufacturers from around the world, including one from Vietnam. And of course, we have a lot of what we do is we look carefully at who should keynote, who should be the top-line speakers at the show. And uh, from the telecommunications world, we have T-Mobile. From the auto world, we have the CEO of GM. We have our first-ever healthcare keynote with Abbott 
Uh, and we even have, you know, the fact that the shifting of exercising so much and exercise to the home, we have the head of Peloton as well. Um, and and in, in the auto area, to get back to that, there's not only so much there, but companies are announcing the first showcasing of new types of cars. They're futuristic cars. There's all sorts of things. And then generally, since the whole show's overriding theme is innovation, we had a record number of innovations entries mm. this year, and over 1,800 products were submitted. And then, we, of course, we have the, we showcase the winners. So we've had a we have a lot of uh, different exciting things going on uh, mm. in a way. And it'll be, every show is different, and we try to make sure it is different. Um, and the companies, you know, they haven't physically exhibited, or even some of them haven't seen their customers, or even some of their own employees in two years. In the the CES in Las Vegas is that opportunity to get together and reestablish those relationships and showcase the technologies. So one of the, you talk about innovation there. One of the interesting things is that we're starting to get, or it certainly feels like we're starting to get into a situation where the technology and the problems that we can solve are from a hardware or software point of view are fairly easy. We've kind of cracked a lot of the code, so to speak. But what's now starting to hinder us in from a technology innovation point of view or hold us back is is that social dilemma, that sort of that sort of general understanding that should we be allowed to do this? Should we, you know, data privacy, there's sort of biometrics, there's all those those kind of those those kind of feelings and thoughts that are harder to to sort of change because it's about people's understanding of how, of, of how technology works rather than the technology it works itself. How do you think we go about resolving that and, and continuing to push that innovation forward that you're talking about. You raise a really excellent point about the tension between um, changing uh, technology and how that impacts our view and government's view, frankly, of, of what we're doing. I think it's a really important discussion to have. Uh, the technology industry, and I speak on their behalf in the United States, welcomes it because it's important, I think, for the tech industry that we have the rules of the road or the guidelines. So new product, new innovation could be introduced without concern that somehow you're violating the law or you're violating your own consumer's trust. And you know, to do that, I think we've taken a number of steps as an industry. At, at our association, we've developed a whole bunch of voluntary standards, including one for wearables that goes into privacy expectations. It was done under the Obama administration and welcomed by them because we talked about things that make sense like transparency, simple language explanations, the ability to opt out. You don't just presume that someone is going to opt in. Uh, the permission required to sell their names and make money or do further things with it. And that's why for the wearables category, you haven't seen a lot of these problems. And all the companies, whether it was Apple or Google or Sony, Fitbit, others, they participated in, and they agreed on this voluntary guidelines, which have since been modified and improved. But the point is they've, they've been there and we did the right thing, I think, as an industry. I think where we have not done the right thing is rapidly growing areas and companies have pushed the envelope a little too far. New governments have come in, try to set their marks. I think what Europe did on uh, privacy standards was helpful in the sense that it set, in a sense, a global standard. We're trying to get that standard of some type embraced in the United States on a national basis. It, we are concerned, though, and we do represent most of our companies are smaller companies and startups, that you don't create something which is a barrier to entry for innovation or for someone with an idea trying to get it. And you also don't create something where every new government that comes in could reinterpret the law and say, this is something we're going to hold you responsible for. What we were really going for is, is innovation without permission. We want to be able to create new products, put them out in the marketplace and let consumers decide. But we want to do it within the confines of these, of these guidelines or barriers or, or um, 
ways of, of bordering and saying, this is what's okay and this is what's not. Because I think fundamental, and I think this goes to Europe and uh, the developed world as well, is that I think businesses have the right to know what is legal and what is not. And if it's not legal, it could be unethical or immoral, and, and that's something obviously we should avoid. But consumers ultimately should be uh, understand what's going on and making their choice whether they trust a company and its brand or not. I mean, if you look at a company like Apple, for example, they've made their name um, based on the fact that they're really good in projecting sure. against hacking and cybersecurity. They have an integrated system. And sure, it's more expensive and they charge people a lot. But, you know, you, when you're an Apple user, you don't worry about the cybersecurity of the products. And there's a trade-off they made as a business case. Uh, I don't think it's unethical at all. I think what they're doing is fine. They're very popular and they and it works. Other companies have gone a different route, you know, more open operating systems. They're a little more vulnerable cyber wise. And then companies have made decisions on privacy and how they're going to ex exploit the information they have. And I think it's, um, we've all clicked through, um, I accept screens because we want to get to where we're going in the internet. Sure, and sure. it's not reasonable, I think, for consumers to have to read those screens or understand the lengthy legal language. You know, I think a better world would be one where there's, you know, platinum, gold and silver standards and we know what they are. I don't know if we can get there, but I do think that government has a major role to play and the industry has a role to play because as a society, and, and this is an important discussion and debate. It's really important on a lot of levels, just not, and I'm giving you the business perspective. No, no, Let no. me give you a bigger perspective than that is we are facing a situation globally now where China has been very assertive in technology. They have a, a leader who has moved their government in a way where it's repressive of human rights and individual rights, freedom of the press, freedom of religion, freedom of association, freedom to marry, freedom to travel, every person's socially ranked. And that's working for them. I mean, they have artificial intelligence. They have databases which they can exploit. They have a plan. They have a, a strategy which could work for them. I just would prefer one that's focused on freedom to vote and democracy and human rights. And that's what uh, the Western world, the United States, Europe, Australia, New Zealand, Japan, uh, South Korea, we all have in common. And I think we have to fight for that, if you will, and make sure that we could be in there competitive with things like artificial intelligence, that we protect individual rights. And we could, I think we could do both, but I think we have to have those types of discussions to get to the point where the regulations make sense in a way that protects individual rights, but also encourages innovation. And we have to strike that balance. And those are the discussions yeah. which should occur. That's, and so let's look at so that's one challenge obviously the other challenge is you know there's been in the headlines quite a lot recently is certainly from following on from cop 26 is this idea of you know it's obviously climate change is is affecting there is about consumerism is about that kind of and while one side of the tech industry will benefit from helping us with new green energy sources and 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 biodiversity and all those kind of things it's how do you how does an industry balance the idea that we should still be replacing our phones every year, that we should be upgrading to the new tech, embracing all that sort of stuff, but within a, sustain, within a sustainable way. That's a great point. Um, there's many different causes, if you will. One is privacy. The other is a greener world, which we all share. And I think the tech industry is in, in many ways embracing that vision in, in a very, very big way. I mean, simply uh, just we've seen it last year and a half with the pandemic, how a lot of technology has allowed us to work from home. It's allowed us to have telehealth and telework and telemedicine and tele all these things. It's allowed us to save a huge amount of energy. And we are very conscious of that as an industry. We're very active in um, measuring our energy consumption, in 
restricting its use and coming up with voluntary standards and doing things, uh, working with our own government here in the United States on um, green labeling uh, with objective standards for energy usage. But energy usage is just one component. It's also energy savings, frankly, because of technology. And then there's uh, the life cycle of a product uh, and, and recycling and use of various chemicals. And there's different things like that, which we're all very conscious of. There's no question that as human beings, I think, you know, the industry is populated by people who are very aware of that, especially younger employees. That's how they're judging their employers. We have a whole bunch of efforts underway to, to help in that area. Um, recycling is, is a very, very big issue. How you design products for, uh, for recycling is, is much discussed about. Companies are focusing about it. They're measuring themselves. They're urging the industry to measure others. Government's involved. There's no question that this is a global effort right now. And most of our major companies have, have made pretty public commitments to a uh, you know, zero carbon neutrality. We are, we are measuring companies and what they're doing. We're helping them. We're working with our government to do that. And I think we have a really good track record. But the fact is, is that if you could cut down on energy usage, um, because of use of the products, I, that I think has to be weighed in as well. Sure. And I've just seen how my own wife, who's a doctor, has shifted uh, a portion of her time now to telemedicine, where she doesn't drive to the office, where the patients don't have to go in with a caregiver and return and keep going back, where they've focusing on treatments and technologies, which don't require all that use. Technology is making a huge difference. And I think it's part of innovation is making sure you could have not only innovation, which is green, and we see a lot of that at CES, the uh, focus on green innovation and what companies are doing, but also technologies which allow people to to travel us. I mean, one of the big discussion items at CES is going to be the shift to the electric car to get away of the, from these these cars which are based on fossil fuel usage. So that that we're seeing in transportation portion of the CES in a big way. We're seeing in the healthcare technology portion of CES. We're seeing so much focus on healthcare technology which will help. Uh, remote health and monitoring and things like that. So you don't have to go to the doctor's office so you could free up doctor's time. Uh, and so you could have earlier intervention. You're seeing cars, which can soon respond to your uh, potential health situation that'll pull over to the side of the road if they feel you're non-responsive. There's all sorts of things coming out there which make a difference from a, a health and environmental point of view uh, with technology. And I think that's where we're going. That's where innovation is headed, is solving these fundamental problems the world has. Now, over the years uh, attending CES, I, I've, and I'm sure you found this as well. Some years you think, okay, we're in a kind of we're waiting for the next big thing, or another years you go and it's like, oh my goodness, this is you know I'm blown away by the innovation. I'm sure you say that every year that you're blown away by the innovation. Do you have a favorite sort of CES from the last twenty years that you went to and thought this is this is going to change the next decade, or are we still are you still waiting for that favorite one to happen? I, I'm more of a, like every show has an amazing things of, 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 of contribution. So look, we have thousands of exhibitors and every one of them thinks they have incredible innovation. They've some, many of them have put their life savings into it. They've spent their whole life on it. It's an idea, uh, engineer scientists working together or some of the bigger companies producing, you know, sometimes it's definitely incremental. Uh, but sometimes it does blow you away. I think where we're going with artificial intelligence and robotics uh, is huge. I mean, I was a big science fiction fan when I was, when I was growing up. And, and this is, it's coming to reality now. We're seeing all sorts of things that you could only imagine doing. I mean, whether it's the internet itself or, you know, what we've seen with HDTV, uh, what we've seen with how drones are now delivering things around the world. And drones have been a <laughs> they really had a lot of their coming out parties at CES. What we're seeing in the mobility space with... Um, you know, with not only cars, but different types of 
mobility devices, including um, they're not even helicopters anymore. They're people movers uh, that are drones. Uh, and we're seeing that in, in other areas as well. And then there's um, certainly solutions that people are providing to creating energy. One of the, the blow away products that, that still strikes me uh, from a couple of years ago, which we'll be back, was how you could just use solar power to take water out of air and produce potable water. And it's being deployed now around the world. It's actually the vice chairman on board, one of his companies he's invested in. And now he's running the Gates um, third major effort, investing over a billion dollars into solving um, environmental and energy problems in third world countries. It's We're seeing solutions to world problems, tech for good, all over the CES floor. And those to title in your, your prior questions, what they're together. That's what's exciting for a lot of people about CES. It's discovery of new uses of technology, which which are out there and can make a fundamental difference. You know, I don't think in my lifetime we'll get to the Star Trek version of teleportation and things like that. Someone who, like me who flies a lot would like to have. But I do think what we're seeing, whether it's food technology or transportation or education or clean water, clean health, uh, lower uses of energy, I think we see so many solutions there. That's why we we have the show. We want to get together people from around the world who see opportunities in solving problems that mankind has that can be solved. And they, and they build off each other. And also, if you think about how technology has evolved, no one company, no one person could do everything. They have to work with each other. And that's why this is really the age of collaboration. Uh, where companies are there exhibiting sometimes just to meet with other exhibitors, if you will, because they want to show what they can do and partner with others. So it's about partnerships, investors. It's about customers. Of course, it's about the thousands of media we have. Um, but this is where we efficiently get together everyone in one place. You know, we figure the average person has over 25 meetings at CES. And as one of the major company CEOs thanked me after a recent CES and said, this would have taken me four months to travel around the world and see the people I saw here in four days. And that's, it, it's a very gratifying feeling producing a show where new businesses are created, new ideas are formed, new partnerships, new relationships, and problems are solved. Battlefield is back and bigger than ever with up to 128 players battling out on epic maps in an all-new multiplayer experience. But can a return to the future and a ditching of the single-player campaign appease fans and newcomers alike? Hoggalint's Max Freeman Mills has been playing the new game to find out and joins me to tell us more. So Max, I'm going to start with a really simple question for you. How many times did you die? I don't know if I could even put a number on that, to be honest. Battlefield, <laughs> it's always been a series where you tend to spawn into immediate death on plenty of occasions. That's not changed here. Um, so in that way, 2042 is very much a continuation of, of the series legacy. That said, it's had a fairly rocky launch. We waited a couple of weeks to slap a final verdict on our, our review uh, for good reason, I think. Right. because. It's such a big game to get to grips with and also as a live multiplayer game, everything's always changing. But that said, at launch, it's been a bit of a buggy time. Um, you've got 128 players uh, on every server, at least on next-gen consoles and PC. It's a little bit smaller on the older consoles. Um, and that's clearly led to some teething issues. You know, you get a lot of visual jankiness and oddities. But that said when everything's working properly, and it does quite a lot of the time, it's, you know, it's good old-fashioned battlefield fun, huge maps that look really beautiful on next-gen consoles, 
Um, loads of vehicles to pick from. Uh, a modest but impressive selection of weapons. They're all quite fun to use uh, after a couple of quick patches from the developers to fix some issues. Um, and yeah, we've been having a, I've been having a great time on it, to be honest. Having said that, there are some issues that I recognise and I think it's going to be a really interesting game to watch over the next year because uh, the developer DICE has already been very communicative with players, making it clear that they're listening to uh, issues that people have and they've already issued more than one patch to fix some of those issues. So exactly where it is in a year's time versus now, I think is going to be a pretty interesting one to watch. So it sounds like it was a, a, a turbulent start, a bit like the battlefield, so to speak. Um, do you think they've, they've and there's promise of updating things in the future, is it good enough now to play? So if you're a Battlefield fan, if you've played the games before, you should really know what to expect here. And if, if you're interested by that, I think definitely jump in. Uh, the, the game is still fun. That's the fundamental here. It's not by any means dull or boring. You're going to have the same squad play. You're going to be able to hop into vehicles, zip around maps, try and influence a huge battle, but still feel like a cog in the machine. However, some of the changes that they've made, I think, are kind of ongoing to see just how well, well they work. The biggest, I think, is that in Battlefield's past, you always felt like an anonymous soldier on a battlefield, part mm. of a huge team. They've changed that. They've got rid of what used to be called uh, classes, and they've effectively let every player play as a character of their choosing. And those characters can select literally whatever equipment they want. So from a player freedom point of view, you can do whatever you like. However, from a teamwork point of view, it's a little yeah. bit harder to convince people to help out with what actually needs doing. Or be the medic or something. Cause exactly. You... So uh, Lord knows I've spent a lot of time dead on my back waiting to get revived and it just doesn't happen. And that is a bit of an issue. And they made it clear they're going to work on that. So actually, a, an update deployed this week uh, changed how revives work to make it a little bit more incentivized for people to actually chip in and get people back on their feet. And that's the sort of thing that can actually have a pretty outsized impact despite being quite a small change on the surface of it. Um, and I think the other thing that's worth highlighting from from a kind of zoomed out perspective is that there are actually three main modes in the game now. All Out war Warfare is the kind of core mode where you're battling on huge maps. But they've also added something called Hazard Zone, which is a much smaller and tenser affair that, if I'm honest, is struggling for players at the moment, but does have an interesting core where you have to infiltrate an area as a squad, pick up objectives, and then leave. And it's kind of a lot more high stakes. And if you die, that's it. And on top of that, they've added something called Battlefield Portal. And I think this is really the key to the game's value at the moment. It's basically a system that lets you play old maps from older games right. and use the settings from those games as players want. There's an online system that lets them basically come up with custom rule sets to, to make maps and game modes that can be completely zany and weird. And there's basically no limit to what people can create. Over the next year, I think it's a reasonable expectation that that system is going to grow and grow and get more complicated and have more maps and weapons to choose from from the past and basically become its kind of its own ecosystem on the side. So in that way, what EA and DICE have made with Battlefield 2042 could be a really potent platform over the next year or even two or three years. As we say, though, right now, yeah. everything's a little bit glitchy and it just needs time to settle down, I think, and to kind of get a sustained player base that kind of can just help things bed down. Now, one of the things I loved about the original, you know, the original series and, and how it's grown and stuff is, is just the sheer scale and size of it. And it feels that this has got bigger 
and bigger. Um, is that still a problem that it's that big or is it is you know is that a good thing? These things cut both ways. So on the one hand, the first time you get in a helicopter, it's provided you don't immediately crash it like I do most <laughs> of the time. The first time you get in a helicopter or a jet and fly, you know, across a Qatari desert and see basically a full-scale city that you're going to be fighting in, it's pretty jaw-dropping. And there are moments when that scale works brilliantly and makes you feel like you're part of a huge conflict. That said, there will also be times, like in older Battlefield games, but with a bigger problem because the maps are just enormous, when you can't spawn into a vehicle, you're a lone soldier and you get dropped into the fight, except actually it's a 30 mile trek. I mean, not literally, <laughs> but I think potentially a literal two kilometer trek to where the fighting actually is. You trudge and you trudge and you trudge. You get there, you immediately die. And hey, presto, you're back to square one. That's a problem that I don't know if it's ever going to go away fully because it's kind of baked into the concept of the game. But it's just as frustrating as it ever was when it happens, it has to be said. <laughs> and so the final question is, do you, should, do you go, if you're into this kind of thing and it sounds exciting, should you go and get it? As a Battlefield fan myself, I have no hesitation saying that if you've liked previous games, you'll find something to enjoy in Battlefield 2042, whether it's the new maps and weaponry or something on Portal that just takes you back to something you used to love uh, when you were younger. However, I would say if you're not quite sold on the series or you've never played a Battlefield game, I'd potentially just give it a month or two. Come 2022, after a few more updates, this could look quite different and certainly be more stable. And frankly, as always with games, it'll probably be cheaper as well. So those would be my two kind of recommendations. Well, that's it for this week's show. Thanks for listening. Until next time, Pip Pip. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.